We're in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20, and then verses 25 through 27. Because of the way that those names show up in the middle here, that's why we're breaking this up. But Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20, and then verses 25 through 27. Follow along as I read this. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but... I want you to be wise or excellent, some of your translations will say. I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Going down to verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul wraps up his letter to the believers in Rome with a warning, a directive, and a blessing, a benediction. So first, the warning. After all that he has said about the gospel, what, what the gospel message is, what it means for us to believe in Jesus, what Jesus has done for us, and how we receive that, and how we can be transformed by that, and how salvation comes through faith. He's now telling us, and, and of course all of the things that are in that second part of Romans about how to live out the gospel, that has been our theme. So as much as he's been, he's been speaking about the gospel throughout this book, he now tells the believers to be discerning about the teaching they receive. He says, be careful. And this is not the only time that Paul issues a warning like this. He warns against false believers, false apostles, and deceitful workers in his letter to the Galatians, to the Philippians, and to the Corinthians. So he's, this is a constant theme in his writing where he says to them, be careful, be aware, be discerning, be don't be unaware of all of these things, but rather pay attention. And so his concern, his concern is that we who believe the gospel are not misled by false teachers who are not serving Christ, but are serving themselves. A number of people, and we talked about this even on Wednesday night, a number of people may be self-proclaimed, self-professing, that they're serving the Lord Jesus. But in fact, they're serving themselves. They're looking out for their own gain. They're looking out for their self-promotion. They're looking out for their gain, selfish gain. And so the word, and so the thing that Paul is telling us is, 
be discerning that there will be those who are serving themselves, their appetites, their bellies. They're looking to get fed from this. They're not looking to feed. They're not looking to give. They're looking to receive. And so he's saying, be discerning. So how do we discern false teaching? Well, false teaching causes divisions and creates obstacles. If the, out, if the ultimate or the final outcome, the result of a teaching or a practice is to separate you from the body of Christ, it is a false teaching. Now, please note, I'm not saying that you compromise the truth of God's word for the sake of unity. Oh, you know, just so that there is no division, I will compromise this. Or I, you know, I know that this is true, but I'll step away from it so that there is no division. I'm not saying that. In fact, and that in many ways that can be a false unity. In fact, you may be forced to separate yourself from self-professed Christians because of false teaching. So this, this caution here, this statement that false teaching causes divisions does not mean that you should seek unity at all costs. You sh rather, you should speak the, or seek the clarity of the word and the truth of the doctrine or the teaching above all else. Right? That becomes the priority. And as Paul testifies in verse 10, so Romans 16, 10, that we read last week, he's speaking about Apelles, and he says, Apelles' fidelity has been tested and has stood. Right? He, what is fidelity? Fidelity is that accuracy in detail and its representation of the original, of the word. So in, in terms of music, for those of you, you know, who are into high fidelity systems, what is it doing? That system, that set of, you know, whatever it may be, is reproducing the original sound at the best possible, in the best possible way, accurately. It's high fidelity. And so he says of Apelles, Apelles' fidelity, meaning his ability to represent the word that God has spoken accurately, has stood the test of faith, has stood the test. His faith has withstood all of that. So he's saying the same thing here, that you should be careful that when somebody tries to cause divisions or when someone's teaching is causing divisions, you must realize that it is a false teaching. And then he continues and he says, if your teaching is focused on how it is different from the word of God. Now, this is not an explicit statement he makes in this passage, but throughout the book of Romans, we see this, and I'm making, I'm elaborating a little bit to make it clear, to say false teaching, how do you discern it? If the teaching is focused on how different it is from the rest of the word of God, rather than harmonizing and finding unity with the word of God, it is a false teaching. Meaning if someone's coming to you and saying, oh, I, I have discovered something brand new and look at what this verse actually means. And contrary to the, the hundreds and thousands of years of teaching and study and all that we have learned, no, no, I have a completely different meaning for this verse and, and this scripture. And it's totally different from the rest of scripture even, but I'm convinced that it's the truth. Be wary and be warned that that is a false teaching. So if it's not in harmony with the rest of the word of God, the Bible is a unified whole with all of the Bible presenting a unified message. It's not this or that 
It's not contradicting. It's not controversial in that sense. It is unified. It is a single message of the plan of God for the salvation, for the redemption of humanity from start to finish. That's how it begins and that's how it ends. And we come to that, well, I'll come to that point again as we keep going through this message. But the point is that the word of God is true. And so you do not, you do not want to receive something that contradicts the word of God, no matter how good it sounds, no matter how appealing it may be. That you say, no, I, you know, this doesn't jive, this doesn't fit, this doesn't, is, this is not consistent with the word of God in its most straightforward, blatant, stated way for us. Okay, so if teaching is not focused on, or if teaching is focused on something that is different from the word of God, it is a false teaching. If teaching is to create a group, or a group of people, or separating a group, that is all about aligning with a leader, and that leader's specific teachings, versus the full message of the gospel, and the full communion and fellowship with the body of Christ, if the teaching is to separate you, we are the only ones who know the truth. All these other people are wrong. And we are the only ones who will follow this particular leader. And this particular leader has the, the revelation from God. And this is where we are going to go. Be wary. There could be a false teaching. Now, I'm not suggesting, again, when every one of these points that I'm making to you, be don't misunderstand me. There are times when you have to stand separately. The, clearly, there were times in history where people went against the, the norm, the standard. The, the majority of people were saying, this is the case, and somebody stood against it. Whether it was the Reformation, or whether it was against slavery, or whether so many other things throughout history, we've seen it. We've seen where one or two or a few individuals stood for the truth in opposition to what everybody else was saying. So that can happen. But in general, if a teaching is to separate a group of people and say only we know the truth, be wary of it. Right? And that's what he's saying. But By the way, this is, this is incidentally what is the characteristic of a Christian cult. A cult that is formed, a group that is formed, is misaligned. It aligns around a misinterpretation of the scripture or denies foundational Christian doctrines such as the deity of Christ. Instead of saying Jesus is fully God, they say, well, no, Jesus was a man or Jesus was a God or whatever else. And when I mention these points, you know already of these kinds of groups that are out there that teach these kinds of things so, and, and, and refer to themselves as Christian. And so we have to say, if there is a teaching that is pulling us out of the body of Christ, pulling us out of the word of God, aligning to some other book, leader, or something else, it is a false teaching. And then, in terms of creating obstacles, if teaching, if a teaching creates obstacles in your pursuit of the Lord, it is a false teaching. Now, this is not where you are not speaking the truth. You may be stating the truth, but in your application of the truth, in your practice, you're putting an obstacle in, and a burden on the believer. You're putting an obstacle in their path, in their way of the Lord, in pursuing the Lord. And you're putting a burden on them that is actually not required through the word of God. You're demanding works, maybe even 
good works, maybe well-intentioned works, but you're relying on and depending on these works for salvation rather than what the Word of God is really saying. Or you're relying on these works for sanctification. Unless you do these things, you're not holy. And the Bible is not requiring that. It's not putting that kind of a burden. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They have a religious authority. They have a positional authority. They're sitting in Moses' seat. They're in that position. So you must be careful to do, what, to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. So they're speaking truth, but they're acting to put obstacles and burdens on the people. In fact, he says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. If you are restricting somebody, no matter how well you think that restriction is good or not, right? If your aim is to say, don't do this, rather than to bring them to Jesus and to point them to Jesus and to keep them in Jesus, you have to ask, where, where are you depending? Are you putting an obstacle in that person's path rather than truly allowing them to be free in Christ Jesus? You see, the practices, the burdens that we put on people, instead of emphasizing freedom in Christ, freedom in Christ that is not a license to sin, but freedom in Christ that is an enabler for us to follow the Lord without restraint. I'm not encumbered by anything. I am free to follow the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. If that is the freedom that you're establishing and that you're emphasizing, wonderful. But if instead of emphasizing that freedom in the, in the Lord, you're teaching that freedoms should be curtailed so that everyone will stay on the straight and narrow path, you're probably putting an obstacle in someone's path rather than allowing them to be united with the Lord. So we have to be careful. Again, I'm not at all saying that there are no restraints in our walk with the Lord. The Bible is filled with scriptures that say, don't do this and do this. Don't go there, don't say this. It has plenty of restraints. Right? The Bible is not giving you license to do whatever you think of. The Bible does not say live according to your own desires, your own whims, your own fancies, whatever lusts and, and uh, you know, likes you have, go, go for it. It's not saying that. But the focus for us, the teaching for us, is not on the restraint, it's on the one who sets us free. Right? And so the Bible is filled in this way, and as we do that, as a child of God, as we fulfill the desires of the Lord, not the fulfills of our own lives or our own hearts and minds, then it is because we are willingly surrendering to and obeying the Lord. Which brings us to the directive that Paul gives in verse 19. He says, be wise at what is good and innocent of evil. What a glorious verse. Be wise or excellent at what is good and innocent about what is evil. Here's what Paul is saying. I know you are wise. He says this in the earlier sections too. Right? We read through this. I know you know the truth. I know you're mature enough to instruct each other. 
But let me remind you to strive for excellence in all that you do. In everything that is good and pleasing to the Lord. In everything that you put your hand to, do it well. And even as you're excellent at what, you're, at what is good, remain innocent of evil. You know, this excellence that I'm talking about here, or the excellence that the Bible is calling us to, this is not perfectionism. This is not saying, you know, as, and, and, and as, as soon as I say this, you'll know exactly what I mean. When your child comes home with a 98, you say, what did you do wrong that you didn't get the, those two? Right? How come you didn't get the two? What happened? Right? What, where did you make the mistake? All right? we, we, we tend to be perfectionists rather than striving for excellence. Striving for excellence is not, does not mean that you are doing everything in exactly the way that it should be done or that everything is perfect, everything is great, and if it falls short of that, you condemn yourself. Oh, I didn't get it right. I didn't obey God right. I didn't sing right. I didn't read right. I didn't preach right. That's not the point here. The Bible is not condemning us in that regard. But it is saying, have that standard, have that goal, have that aim. That's not just, oh, I'll do whatever. I'll give it my best. I will make my commitment. I will do those things. I will, I, I, when, I keep, when I give my word, I will keep my word. I will do this with excellence. And I will do it because the Holy Spirit will strengthen me, will empower me to do that. That's what this excellence or this call to excellence is about. It's imitating our Father who does all things well. Right? He doesn't do things half-heartedly. He doesn't do things in a way that we say, oh, that was good, but I wish there was something more. Right? We, we are able to experience the fullness of God's provision for us. He does all things well. He is good. He is doing only good for us. And that should be the attitude that we go in with, you know, when we talk about excellence. You do your job, do it with every effort to do it excellently. You don't know something about your job or something that, how, to, how, it's, to be, how it's to be done? Find out how to do it. Go get certified. Do whatever. I mean, do what you need to to learn how to be excellent at that particular task. You're in the worship team? Practice hard. Right? But do it with excellence. Do it in such a way that the world around you says, these people are serious. They are committed. They have something that is of value for them in what they're doing. Do all that you would do with excellence, with wisdom. The wisdom of God allows us to do what is right, what is good. The knowledge of God and the knowledge that God gives us allows us to know what is right, but the wisdom of God gives us the ability to do what is right, to respond to that, to take action in a way that will be appropriate before the Lord. And so Paul says, be excellent at what is good and, and, not or, and, innocent of evil. I used to think, you need to know all about the evil. Because you need to know what's out there. You need to know what society's evils are, right? Then you can avoid it. There's no end to evil. There's no bottom to depravity. I encourage you very strongly. And those that are older are already shaking their heads. You know, 
if you're just sort of starting in life this way and you think, oh, I'll, you know, my kids are young, I'll find out what is evil and I'll block those things. Right? I'll put the filters on. I'll do those things. I'll find out what is evil and then I'll avoid that. You'll never do it. There's no end to it. There's no way that you can say, I know all about the darkness. You can never be street smart enough or savvy enough or knowledgeable enough about evil to then say, now I'll avoid it. Now I know. Oh, I, I, you know, I, I know. There, there, that's, that's the mind. That's the trap. I'll avoid that. No, you won't be able to do it. You know what the Bible calls us to instead? It says your discernment of evil, your discernment to avoid evil comes from knowing the truth of God. It comes from knowing how you can recognize the lie. If you know the truth, the truth, the truth, the truth, and then something comes along that is a lie, you will say, ooh, this looks different. You don't have to know about it. You don't have to investigate it. You don't have to spend time analyzing it and exhaustively you know, going through the background of it. You know the truth, the truth, the truth, the truth, and then when this shows up, you'll say, wait a minute, this doesn't look right. This doesn't line up. This is not consistent with what I learned. This is not consistent with what the word says. And you will discern the lie. You will discern the evil because you know the truth. You simply have to know the real to recognize the counterfeit. You don't have to know all the counterfeits. There's too many. You don't have to explore how to deal with the darkness. You just have to shine the light. Or more accurately, you just have to reflect the light. You don't have to figure it out. Where's the darkness coming from? Why is it coming? When is it coming? If I go in these particular ways, will I... Can I do something about the darkness? No, don't worry about it. Shine the light. Be the light. Reflect the light. Let he who said, I am the light, be in you fully. You'll be fine. And that's why Paul says, be innocent of evil. You don't have to taste it, feel it, touch it, indulge in it, do all of that, and then say, now I know what the evil is, now I need God. He says, you don't even have to know that. You don't have to go down that path. You don't have to do it. When somebody around you says, but you are missing out if you've never experienced this. You only live once. You've got to try this. You only, you know, right? This is, this is the thing, right? YOLO. Yeah, you know, you've you got to experience this. You've got, you got to try this. It's so good. You're missing out. You can be innocent of evil. You can be excellent at what is good and innocent of evil by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And notice how Paul concludes this particular thought. He's talking about being excellent at what is good and innocent of evil. And in verse 20, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. And you, you look at that and you go, what's the connection? Be excellent in what is good, innocent of evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan. And it's not an image that you would think of for peace. The crushing Satan's head doesn't seem like a very peaceful act. But you know what 
the meaning is? Because all the way back in the book of Genesis, when humanity fell, when Adam and Eve sinned, when they turned from God and they blamed each other and they blamed the serpent, God pronounced judgment on each one of them. And he pronounced judgment on the serpent, on, the, on Satan, on the one that had caused human beings to sin. He said to the serpent, you will be cursed. And he says to them, says to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed, and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What is God saying? Right from the beginning in the book of Genesis, he's saying, look, because of what human beings have done, you have now broken relationship with God. And my whole plan, even before the creation of the world, was to put in place a way by which you will be restored in relationship with me. But through that period, from when you fell to when you are restored fully in me, Satan will keep striking your heel. He will keep doing all that he can. But there will be a day when the God of peace will soon crush Satan. That's our hope. That's our cry. That's our, that's our confidence. That God doesn't say, look, the, this, this affliction that you're facing and this heel, heel biting that's going on is going to end up in your death. He says, no, you know what? This will continue for a little bit. But there is coming a day when a crushing is taking place and that crushing is actually the most peaceful thing that can happen because it will usher in complete peace, total peace, total restoration. That's the promise we have. And so we are excellent at what is good and innocent of evil even as we await this God of peace, the God of hope that we talked about a few chapters ago, and the God of peace who will do all of this to fulfill and bring us into that ultimate peace. So the warning, the directive, and the blessing. Our greatest blessing, our greatest blessing comes from our glorifying God. Paul's last word to the believers and Paul's last word to, this, to us is this. To God alone be the glory. It is God that can establish us in accordance with the gospel for his glory. It is God that preserves us so that we may, join, so that we may be joined with him for eternity for his glory. It is God that works in us and through us to bring many to salvation and obedience and faith to fulfill God's plan and purpose for his glory. See, when we started in the book of Romans, I said that Romans is a very, very instrumental book in the life of the church. It was through this phrase, through this truth about us being saved or justified by faith that Martin Luther even initiated the Protestant Reformation and went against the things of the church, the established religion at the time. He went against that because he said no. The Bible is clearly talking about justification by faith, not by works. And so there was this, this 
change this shift that took place. And through the centuries, many, many children of God have benefited greatly. And this, these church reformers in particular, as they've gone through the book of Romans, have, have compiled these truths and said, clearly, here's what the Bible is telling us. Here are the statements of how we can believe solely in the word of God. And so in general, these things are called the five soles, or sola, from the Latin word sola, which means alone. And if you look at these five points, these are the foundational or sort of established principles, doctrines of the Christian faith. Justification, sanctification, all of that comes into this. We've talked about those words. But each of these solas represents a key belief and one that we hold to today. And so what does it say? Sola gratia, or we are saved by grace alone, not by our works, by the grace of God. And sola fide, through faith, we're saved by grace alone, through faith. That word fide there is the same as the one that we get fidelity from, faith. And so, sola gratia, sola fide, solas Christus, in Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nobody else, nothing else. In Christ, we are saved. And sola scriptura, according to scripture, alone, saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, according to scripture. That's what we're reading in all these chapters in Romans. He keeps referring to this. The prophets have told us this. The teachers have told us this. We have the word that establishes these things for us. It is in that truth that we are established. Not in the traditions of men, not in the culture of men, not in the practices of men, not in the things that we think are the right or true teaching, but rather in what the word says. And finally, most importantly, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, according to the scripture, for the glory of God alone. Not for our benefits. Do we benefit? Absolutely. Are we restored in Christ? Are we redeemed? Are we set free? Have we received the gift of eternal life? Are we saved from death? Absolutely. Do we receive power to live this daily life in the world today? Absolutely. Do we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes as our counselor, our paraclete, our, our comforter, our teacher, our guide, our empowerer? Absolutely. Do we have the, the Lord himself interceding for us? Absolutely. We have so many benefits. But all of this is for the glory of God. That is why when we press into God, when we worship with all our being, spirit, soul, and body, when we bless the Lord, when we look to him and not to ourselves, when we exercise faith, live by faith, when we trust the Lord, when we seek faith, first his kingdom and his righteousness, then we will naturally have all that we need for life and godliness. 
pursue God first, pursue the things of God first, we will be blessed in turn. Our best point of application then in this word, in this summary of the book of Romans, is not to ask God for more. It's to bless God because he's worthy. It's to glorify God. So what's the last word of Paul? Ultimately, glorify God. Worship him. Give everything to him. It's, that's the way that we can join with the old hymn writers and say, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Oh, so loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. And so what do we do? We say, oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus, the Son, and give him the glory. Great things he has done. You know, we can join with all those hymn writers. We sing, oh God, your perfect redemption. Oh, your, your promises that have been fulfilled. The things that you have taught us. And even as we sang this morning, you are worthy of it all. You alone deserve the glory. That's the reality of who we are in Christ Jesus. That's the wonder and the beauty of this experience that we have in Christ Jesus. We're not following a fable. We're following a truth. And it transforms us. It energizes us. It gives us life. It enlivens us. Oh, praise God for that. You know, every Sunday morning, I remind us that we are to die to self and be raised up to new life in Christ Jesus. And then every Sunday morning, I say a word of blessing over you as a congregation. And I say, look, we receive the blessings of God. We receive the blessings of God that are based on his promises, on his power, and on his presence. Him coming, him having his way, him doing this work. And we are so blessed. And so when I speak that blessing and benediction over you, you know, and I say, Let, you know, may the Lord do this. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord make his face shine on you. May the Lord increase you. May the Lord cause you, your name to be written in the book of life. We receive those blessings from the Lord. But this morning, I want to do something slightly different. As we conclude our book of Romans, and as we look at this last word from Paul, we don't just want to receive a blessing from the Lord, we want to speak a word of blessing to the Lord. And so we're going to stand together, and we're going to speak this together. A little long, but it's those last two verses that we read. And I, and I say to you, and you can follow along in other versions, but if you don't have that, and for the sake of being in, in sync, in the same words, I encourage you to just follow along on what's on screen. But what we're saying to the Lord, Lord, I acknowledge your truth. I acknowledge your work. I acknowledge what you have done for me. And because of that, I glorify you. So let's read this together. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with the gospel... The message we proclaim about Jesus Christ 
in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.